Welcome to Memorial Day weekend at North Place Church. And before we do anything else, let me just acknowledge and honor those of you who have family members who have given their life in service to this country. That's what this day is all about, honoring their memory. If you know someone whose loved ones have given their life in service to this country over the course of this holiday weekend, speak their name, honor their memory. That's what we do when we celebrate this weekend appropriately. I'm sitting down today um, trying to uh, be a little more conversational with you. I, I have a, a burden, a strong word on my heart today. So if I'm not your pastor, you're welcome to sit in and listen to a family conversation, but just know that's what it is. This is going to be a family conversation. If I am your pastor, and I want you to stay with me to the end, I want you to hear me out. This is going to be really direct and to the point. The next few minutes are going to be really out of character for me. I'm not the kind of guy that runs around looking for controversy. Matter of fact, I try to avoid it. And the only reason I'm doing what I'm about to do is because I feel directly compelled of the Holy Spirit and would be obedient, disobedient if I didn't. I'm one of those guys that rather stay out of the weeds. I'd rather preach a theologically rich sermon and let the Holy Spirit take the word and apply that word into your lives. So I've argued with God in prayer over the last few days about what I was feeling led to do, feeling led to get in the weeds, and it seems that he wants me to be less of a preacher, an orator, and a theologian today, and more of a pastor and a shepherd. The last few days, my heart has been heavy. It has been broken and burdened over the attitudes and actions of people who claim to follow Jesus. I've wept, literally, in prayer. And I keep hearing these words when I pray, this phrase. I know it's a biblical phrase, but I had to look it up. I kept hearing this phrase as I prayed, I beseech you. Now, we don't use that word beseech much anymore in the English language, but it was a very common word used in the King James translation of the Bible. So I got out my King James Bible and I looked, and it was a word used over and over again throughout the New Testament, especially by the apostles Paul and James. The word beseech means to beg or to plead or to urge someone. So if you beseech somebody, you're pleading urgently and anxiously with them about something. And that's what I've come to do today. I have come to beseech you. I'm beseeching you in the same way the Apostle Peter did when he wrote, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Or when the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or calling wherewith you are called. Now what Paul says here in Ephesians 4 is exactly what I feel compelled of the Holy Spirit to be urging you about, begging you about, pleading with you about, beseeching you about today. So I want to look at Ephesians 4 in a, in a larger context. This time I want to read it from the New Living Translation. Go all the way back to the beginning with me. Here's what Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, the King James said, beseech you, to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now this is what he's begging them to do, and as your pastor today, this is what I'm 
beseeching you to do. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, building yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. My heart today is to beseech you, to plead with you, to fight for the unity and the integrity of our church, our faith, and our Lord. I spent countless hours on the phone over the last few weeks with dozens of pastors from across the country seeking wisdom and counsel about how we should go about our reopening plans. And in those conversations, pastor after pastor said to me, the one thing that blindsided them was how politically polarized their churches had become during these lockdowns. The moment they went public with the reopening strategy, a noticeable division surfaced in the church. People started picking sides and slinging mud. One pastor said to me, and I quote, he said, I never would have thought the difference in the word recommended or required when it came to mask would cause supposedly mature Christian people to lose their religion. People are ready to fight about it. It has become an explosive political issue. I've not only heard that over and over again, I've seen it. Look, what I'm about to say to you is not intended to be a political statement or a commentary. I have no desire to talk you into something or out of anything as it relates to your politics or whatever you believe about wearing masks. But I do feel compelled to talk about what it looks like to be a Christian in the process. And according to Paul in Ephesians 4, it looks a lot like always being humble and gentle. Being patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults, and fighting for the unity of God's family. Political polarization has been worsening in our country for a long time. And a virus that actually looked like it was going to bring us together in the beginning has now become a convenient tool in the hands of our spiritual enemy to attack the unity of the spirit among God's people. If you'll notice, Paul said, be patient with one another. Christianity is a one another faith. There are 56 different one another commands in the Bible. The Bible tells us to love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another, live in peace with one another, encourage one another, have mercy and compassion on one another, and spur one another on to good works, and so many more. Even Jesus in John 13, 35 says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So based on what Jesus said, the greatest defense of the Christian faith, the greatest apologetic of our faith is how we treat each other in times just like this. The greatest proof of whether or not we really follow him is the way we love one another. So let me ask you a couple questions. In front of a watching world, 
Is your love and patience with people, especially people who disagree with you, is your love and patience with those people proof that you are his disciple? Is your social media feed, your attitude with disagreeable people and other areas of your life consistent with the one another's in Scripture? Or are you constantly a spoon stirring the bowl of controversy? Here's part of the problem. A selfish attitude and prideful arrogance. We choose to see things one way. And when people don't line up with us, we label them as un-American or less spiritual or both. We resort to name-calling that demonizes and dehumanizes the value of somebody God loves. Somebody you should love. Have you noticed how remarkably confident people are in their views right now. And for the most part, it's an unfounded confidence. As it relates to this virus, even the experts keep changing their minds. And yet in our arrogance, Christian people are waging verbal wars with other Christian people. And in the process, we're not proving to the world that we are his disciples by our love for one another because we're so blinded by our selfish attitudes and our prideful arrogance. So what if time proves you to be right? If you were a jerk in the process and marred the name of Christ and stained the image of the church, that loss is greater than anything you gained by winning the argument. Satan himself is baiting us into belittling arguments and quarrels. And as your pastor, I beseech you, Don't take the bait. The next time somebody's Facebook post causes your blood pressure to rise and you arrogantly think you got to wade off into it, remember, number one, I'm not that important. Number two, they're probably not going to listen to anything you say. It's not going to change their mind. And number three, and most importantly, remember what Paul said, Romans 14, 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Or what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, everyone. The ones that require a mask and the ones that recommend it. The Democrat, the Republican. The ones that say we ought to open last week and the ones that says the economy should wait to reopen. Everyone, he says, be patient with difficult people. You know what Christian people need right now? We need a real dose of Christ-like biblical humility. We have to move from our arrogance to a kingdom awareness. An awareness of the disagreeing person's value. An awareness of how our attitude and strife reflects on the greater cause of Christ. An awareness that our opinion is just that, an opinion. I beseech you, church. I beg you. I plead with you. For the cause of Christ, let's guard our attitudes, tame our tongues, and repent over our arrogance. Here's another problem. We've made our ethnic, our national, and our political affiliation a greater priority than our kingdom affiliation. Let me explain what I mean. 
Most of us watching this today are Americans. There are probably some exceptions around the world or even within our own church. We're white Americans or black Americans or Asian Americans or Hispanic Americans or I could go on and on. But if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, making Him Lord and coming into His kingdom, then being a part of His family is not just some value added to your current way of life. He is your life and He reorders every priority in your life. And if you don't understand that, you don't fully understand what it means for Him to be Lord. You don't understand Lordship or what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. For example... If you're an Asian American believer, you're not an Asian American that just happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian now that happens to be an Asian American. His kingdom and the kingdom family now transcends your ethnic, your national, and your political allegiances. Sure, our unique cultures remain valuable and important to us, but they cannot be the first allegiance in our life once we've surrendered to his dominion and his lordship. You are now a part of another kingdom under the dominion of King Jesus. This is a kingdom of the reverse. A kingdom where widows are more powerful than kings and her poverty has more influence with God than the wealth of nations. A kingdom where its citizens are always Humble and gentle, patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults, fighting for the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. This is a kingdom that transcends man-made ideologies, party platforms, red and blue, elephants and donkeys. This is the kingdom of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this kingdom mentality does not fit well within our current political system. Think about it with me for a moment. I heard this point made recently, and it makes, it's so true. Listen, there are four really important things in the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, especially modeled in the life of Jesus and the writing, writing of apostles like James. They're not the only four things that are important to a kingdom mentality or a kingdom life, but according to Scripture, every one of these four things should be really important to every follower of Jesus. Racial equality. Justice for the poor and the powerless, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of life. But if you want to try to fit that kingdom worldview into America's political system, you've got to pick a party. Whichever one of those four or those two or two of the four matter most to you. Because if, if racial equality and justice for the poor and powerless matter to you, you're probably going to default to one party. If the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life matters to you, you're going to default to the other party. And each party either ignores or blatantly opposes two of the other four on this list. And yet all four are expected calls to champion by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means if you let political ideology be your idol or the clarion call of your life, you've got to sacrifice your kingdom credentials to fit into some man-made ideology. But if you're kingdom-minded and you're all in with Jesus, your worldview doesn't fit the American political system. Obviously, there are more things to kingdom living than those four, but I just point out those four as an example that our kingdom allegiance has to transcend our political allegiance. I'm not saying the political landscape 
is unimportant. It is important. And we should all be engaged in it in a civil, Christ-honoring way. But if you wrap your entire emotional well-being in the outcome of an American election in November, if for you, it will be the end of the world if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to, you have placed a greater hope in a political system than you do God himself. God has built his kingdom under dictators and tyrants and atheistic governments, even governments that have brutally persecuted his people and his church. And one election in one country in one moment in history is not going to tie God's hands. And if your greatest, ultimate, supreme allegiance is to his kingdom and the bigger picture, you understand that. But if your greatest allegiance is to your politics, your national pride, or your ethnicity, then you don't understand that. You will always be driven by a narrow, selfish attitude that arrogantly upholds ethnicity, nationalism, and politics over what matters most to God and His kingdom. Again, we just need to be aware. Move from arrogance to awareness. Just be aware that the kingdom of God is not an American idea. The kingdom of God is not Republican or Democrat or black or white or a brown idea. The kingdom of God transcends all of that. It is bigger than all of that. I'm not trying to talk you into something. And I'm not trying to talk you out of something. I'm just here to plead with you, to beseech you, to be a Christian in the process, not just in name, but in action and practice. Let me give you one little example of what it looks like to move from arrogance to awareness. Just one example, and I just randomly pick the area of racial arrogance. Okay, let's just, this is what it looks like from that one area of racial arrogance to move from awareness to arrogance. I love soul food. I pastored in a predominantly African-American community, and I learned soul food. I don't mean some chain soul food. I mean the kind of soul food mom and them make that a white guy feels uncomfortable being in because it's black cooks for a black neighborhood with black patrons. I, I love that kind of food. And there are places in Oak Cliff and South Dallas that I really like to eat, but I don't go without black and brown friends with me because it is so obvious that I'm an outsider in that culture. It feels uncomfortable to me if I'm with black and brown friends in that environment. I feel a little more comfortable because I, I am with people who are in the in-group, even though I'm obviously a part of the out-group, but I still feel awkward and uncomfortable. For those of you that are listening to me who are white, do you realize that what we feel in moments like that is what our minority brothers and sisters feel every day in a dominant culture? Every day. Most of my black and brown friends are not asking me to live in white guilt. Matter of fact, they would encourage me to be as proud of my life and culture and my family and the way I, where I come from as they are theirs. All they're asking me and us as a dominant culture is to be aware that it may be a little different for them. But some of us have never experienced the awkwardness or the difference. But what is one moment for us is a life for them. And that simple awareness is life-giving to race relations. We have to move from arrogance to awareness. I heard somebody say in the beginning of this crisis that this pandemic was going to lead us to revival. Well, let me emphatically say it hasn't. How do I know? 
Because every great revival, both in the biblical narrative and in contemporary history, started with God's people on their faces in repentance. Even the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4 that judgment must first begin in the house of God. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Revival begins in the house of God. But as of right now, for a lot of Christian people, all this pandemic has done is help us see the faults in everybody else and what's wrong with everybody else's opinion. Until this moment in history becomes a mirror exposing our own arrogances where in turn we repent, it's not revival. And there's no chance for one. We need to repent of our racial arrogance, our national arrogance, our political arrogance, our spiritual arrogance, and so much more. Over the last few days, as I wept under a heavy pastoral burden for our church and the Lord's church as a whole, these verses kept coming to my mind. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphan, fight for the right of the widows. James 1.26, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. On Wednesday of this week, I will release a video laying out the reopening strategy for North Place Church. When it comes out, it will be too late for some of you And what I say in there will be too early for others of you. But I can tell you from the heart, there has been countless of hours of prayer and research and pastor and elders meetings that have gone into this. It's not going to be perfect, but it is our best attempt to honor God, protect the integrity of this church, to keep you safe and provide some semblance of an opportunity for us to gather here again. When you hear it, don't take the bait. Don't pick sides. Don't over-spiritualize your response and become critical of everybody else's. I beseech you to receive it through this filter. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. And I'm so grateful, North Place that you're in my kingdom family and that I get to be your pastor. So hear my heart. And if anything that I've said today offends you, 
Before I ask for forgiveness, let me ask you to search your heart if you are offended by anything I've said. And first ask, could it possibly be the conviction of the Holy Spirit trying to move you from aware arrogance to awareness? Father, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face shine down upon them? Would you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their directions today and grant them peace. And Lord, what I ask is that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would represent you well. In Jesus' name.